American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. If you like American Catholic history, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're doing our first ever repeat episode. We're talking again about Frank Capra, the Christmas Catholic Hollywood man who wrote, produced, and directed some of the most important and most deeply Catholic films of Hollywood's golden era. Now we're doing a second pass at Capra because, well, it's Christmas time. And this year is the 75th anniversary of his cinematic masterpiece, It's a Wonderful Life. So we decided to do Capra again and add a bit more about that timeless classic. To be specific, December 20th, 1946 was the premiere date of It's a Wonderful Life, exactly 75 years from the day that you're going to be listening, hopefully, to this episode. And also, with everything we had going on, we just didn't really have time to research and write an entire new episode this week. Yeah, no. With preparations for Christmas Eve dinner, which we are hosting at our house, with things going on with our Montessori school, Hilltop Children's House, and with some other projects, time just hasn't been there. So let's start our Frank Capra reprise. Frank Capra, director's cut. Something like that. So when most people hear Frank Capra's name, the first thing they think of is his 1946 film, It's a Wonderful Life. And that's well and good. Like we said, it's the 75th anniversary of the premiere of that classic. But if you know how many other great films he was responsible for, films that received more critical acclaim in their day than It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, he actually had been nominated for six Oscars before directing It's a Wonderful Life. He'd won Best Director for It Happened One Night, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and You Can't Take It With You. And he also was nominated for Lady for a Day, Lost Horizon, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And then he was nominated for Best Director for It's a Wonderful Life. But he did not win. Yeah, well, there was some really stiff competition that year. I assume you're going to tell us who it was. Um, yes, it lost out to The Best Years of Our Lives, which is a story about a heart-wrenching story about three soldiers, well, our servicemen coming home after World War II and trying to reintegrate into their old lives. Directed, so you're saying it deserved it. Directed by Billy Wyler and definitely worth watching also. Okay. I haven't seen it. I mm -hmm. have to put it on the list. I think I'll have to show it to but you. But regardless, with a resume like that, Capra really has a case for being considered the goat of directors, greatest well, of all time. <laughs> well, you know, Hitchcock might have something to say about that. But yeah, yeah. I, I get what you're doing there. Listeners, Capra means goat in Italian. So Tom is doing a little pun here. Across languages. And it's yeah, hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of funny if you like puns. But I'll give you it. I'll take it. <laughs> okay. Back to Capra the director. 
There's a theme that runs through Capra's movies, good people living good lives, but who are chewed up and spit out by the harshness of reality. But in the end, their goodness wins out. Naturally, those people who might feel accused by such a motif might not appreciate the constant victory of simple goodness. People like Hollywood critics of the 60s and 70s when what they wanted was shock and edginess. So these critics came up with a term for his films, Capricorn, because they consider them to be too light and fluffy and too much wishful thinking to be worth anything. Ah, but they are hoist on their own petard because Capricorn, of course, is the name of the constellation that is a goat. So the critics were actually agreeing with me. He's the goat (laughs) among the stars. And that's even punnier. Oh my gosh, you're still... Oh, you're so ridiculous. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so they, they weren't that clever, but they didn't realize what they were saying. And Capra's films did have a vision of life that was actually very Catholic, very sacrificial, without having any explicit religious themes or symbolism. But Capra wasn't a lifelong practicing church-going Catholic. In fact, in his 20s and 30s, Capra called himself a Christmas Catholic. So let's tell our listeners a bit more about his background. Sure thing. So Frank Capper was born in Sicily on May 18th, 1897. He was the youngest of seven surviving children. His parents came to the U.S. in 1903, coming through Ellis Island when Frank was six years old. They settled in Los Angeles. His father was a fruit picker, and his mother raised him and his six surviving siblings. His parents were devout Catholics, and the kids all got foundations in the faith, even if they, like Frank, didn't adhere to it throughout their lives. But something we talked about with Babe Ruth in episode 16 seems to have been true of Capra also. Ruth talked about having a solid little chapel inside. He said that though kids may rebel, they get the faith where it counts, down in the roots, and it stays with them and never fails. This seems to have been the case with Capra. Right. He may have wandered away from the faith, but it didn't wander away from him. Capper worked his way through college and he earned a degree in chemical engineering. Right. Not exactly the sort of college studies that you would think of for a career as a Hollywood director. No, not typically. But with where movie making technology was headed, it was a fortunate degree for him. But more on that soon. So, with a chemical engineering degree in hand, he got a job in the 1920s as a writer for Hal Roach and his Our Gang series. Exactly what you expect of a chemical engineer. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) After working with Roach for a time, he moved on to work with silent film comic star Harry Langdon. The character that he helped Langdon develop showed the first signs of what would be this very Catholic thread in his own films, a simple, fundamentally good person whose only ally is God in a world where bad things happen. Langdon's character basically just had to rely on God for all good things. He signed on with Columbia Pictures at the end of the 1920s. Columbia at the time wasn't a frontline production company, but Capra was poised to make his mark while there. With the shift to talkies happening, that is, movies with sound, directors had to go about their work very differently. Capra, with his engineering education, was one of the very few directors who easily grasped the changes in technology with the new sound recording equipment, and so he was ahead of his peers in directing talkies. Success came quickly for him. His first mega hit was It Happened One Night in 1934. It was the first film to sweep the top five Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay. 
He directed one more film in 1934, Broadway Bill, but with his rapid rise of success, he had a bit of a crisis of faith. It was prompted by something someone said to him as his star was rising and he was beginning to take himself too seriously. No one's quite certain who said it, but whoever it was said to him, The talents you have, Mr. Crapra, are not your own, not self-acquired. God gave you those talents. They are his gifts to you to use for his purpose. And when you don't use the gifts God blessed you with, you are an offense to God and to humanity. Those words struck Capra and changed everything for him, not just his future film projects. He even began to turn back to his Catholic faith. Well, that part took many years and was helped along by his wife, Lucille. But this experience and the soul searching it prompted led to a series of four great films over the next six years. All of them were nominated for Academy Awards. Mr. Deeds Goes to Town in 1936, Lost Horizon in 1937, You Can't Take It With You in 1938, and the classic Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939. He said of his new focus in filmmaking, My films must let every man, woman, and child know that God loves them, and that I love them, and that peace and salvation will become a reality only when they all learn to love each other. And he set out to do that. The first of the films he made after this mini-conversion was Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, starring Gary Cooper, another Catholic with a fraught story. We'll likely do an episode on him at some point. Mr. Deeds Goes to Town features a simple and good-natured man who is abused and mistreated by everyone around him, including by people whom he has reason to trust but who betray him. It is only by remaining a good and decent man that Deeds is able to overcome the evil. Capra said that doing Mr. Deeds gave him a golden opportunity to dramatize love thy neighbor as thyself. Christ's spiritual law can be the most powerful sustaining force in anyone's life. The author Graham Greene reviewed the film and identified Capra's formula as the theme of goodness and simplicity manhandled in a deeply selfish and brutal world. That theme would carry through subsequent films. You Can't Take It With You, based on the play of the same name, is about an eccentric and very happy family that doesn't worry about living sensibly in the ways the world thinks of living sensibly. They clash with the wealthy and sensible but miserable family of their daughter's fiancé. Yeah, and it stars Jimmy Stewart. Again, simplicity, goodness, and detachment win out over worldly success. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, also starring Jimmy Stewart, features a simple man who believes in the goodness and integrity of everyone he's going to work with in Washington. Yeah. But once there, he gets rolled by the machinations of power brokers in government. In the end, his fundamental goodness awakens the consciences of some of those around him. Actor Richard Griffiths characterized Capra's typical hero as a messianic innocent, someone who would be initially defeated by his own lack of experience and knowledge, but whose integrity and courage would see him outlast his foes and inspire others to goodness. In 1940, Capra himself told the New Yorker magazine, It sounds sappy, but the underlying idea of my movies is the Sermon on the Mount, a plus value of some kind along with entertainment. When the U.S. entered World War II, Capra voluntarily enlisted in the Army, though he was in his 40s. He was tasked by General George Marshall with making the Why We Fight series of films used by the Army to help soldiers better understand the reasons for American involvement in the war. He later regarded the Why We Fight films to be the most important thing he did. The first of them, Prelude to War, actually won the Academy Award for Best Documentary. 
He went back to Hollywood after the war, where he and two other directors started their own production company, Liberty Films. And the first film Liberty produced was It's a Wonderful Life. The thing about this film is just how deeply and widely Catholic it is. Truly. George Bailey, played, of course, by Jimmy Stewart, has dreams and ambitions, but he also has a sacrificial nature. He is quick, if not eager, to put others' needs ahead of his own dreams. He saves his brother from drowning and loses hearing in one ear. He gives loans to people who desperately need the money, but who likely cannot pay the loans back. He gives up his dreams of traveling to carry on his father's work of helping the less fortunate. For his efforts and sacrifice, he faces ruin. The villain, Mr. Potter, on the other hand, is a miserly, miserable, materialistic, greedy man who will not help anyone who and who will not be moved to compassion. Bailey, in a moment of despair, is given the opportunity to see what the world would have been like if he had never been born. He sees how different would be the lives of his family and of his town if he never existed. The experience changes him and gives him the strength to face the consequences. And his trouble inspires his friends and relations to come through and help him when he was in desperate need of their aid. The reason Bailey gets that opportunity is because of the people who are praying for him. The film is an incredible depiction of the communion of saints, that cloud of witnesses and the power of prayer. A few interesting tidbits about It's a Wonderful Life that make it just so powerful. First... This was the first film Jimmy Stewart did after he'd been in the crucible of World War II. And if you don't know about Stewart's military career, the dude was a legend. Stewart's wartime experience was vital for the pivotal scene on the bridge when George Bailey is contemplating suicide. This scene was raw and real for Stewart. He wasn't merely acting at that point or at other parts when he had to portray angst and pain and trauma. He was just sort of letting the war trauma flow. A couple of other points about the film. First, that prayer scene at Martini's bar was written to be a wide shot with everybody around Stewart. There were no cameras taking close-up shots. But Stewart played it with raw emotion and the tears were just something that came. Capra wanted to do that as a close-up, you know, again as a close-up. But Stewart said he couldn't do it again. So Capra directed his film technician crew to spend many, many hours enlarging the many thousands of frames of film involved to accomplish a zoom that he knew he needed. The result is magic. The second bit is that Stewart was the second choice for the role of George Bailey. The first was actually Cary Grant. I cannot imagine Cary Grant doing that role. I know. I, I can't. I either. love Cary Grant, but. It would be a completely different film. <laughs> yes. Uh, but in an interview many years later, Stewart said that when Capra approached him about the film, he was hesitant to tell Stewart about it, almost embarrassed. But after giving a brief description of the plot, Stewart said, Frank, if you want me to be in a picture about a guy that wants to kill himself and an angel comes down named Clarence who can't swim and I save him, well, when do we start? <laughs> Stuart was amazing. Truly. The third tidbit is that the basic story was purchased by RKO Productions from a guy who had printed the basic short story on his Christmas card. Capra worked with three different top-notch Hollywood writers, but none of them quite captured what Capra knew the script needed to be. So he wrote the script himself. Capra said this film was the ultimate result of that admonition he'd gotten back in 1934, that if you're not really using the talents and gifts that God gave you, you are an offense to God and to humanity. Likewise, if you do use them, you have no idea how much good you really can and will do. He said of It's a Wonderful Life that it was the greatest film he ever made. 
a sentiment shared by Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed, by the way, of the film, he said it is a film to tell the wary, the disheartened, the disillusioned, the wino, the junkie, the prostitute, those behind prison walls and those behind iron curtains, that no man is a failure to show those born slow of foot or slow of mind, those oldest sisters condemned to spinsterhood and those oldest sons condemned to unschooled toil, that each man's life touches so many other lives and that if he isn't around, it would leave an awful hole. Interestingly, It's a Wonderful Life was supposed to be released in January 1947, but another film project which Liberty had planned to be their Christmas release was delayed. So It's a Wonderful Life was moved up and it premiered on December 20th, 1946. In part because of pushing up its premiere date, It's a Wonderful Life didn't enjoy great success in its initial theater run, and it was largely forgotten soon after. And that was a bit of a coda on Capra's film career. The 1950s and 1960s brought the era when the Capricorn epithet was really used to talk down his storytelling style. Those decades were just too cynical to be moved by Capra's Catholic vision. The film industry had changed, and Capra took on that change in his 1971 autobiography, The Name Above the Title. The book somewhat resurrected his career and renewed interest in his films. In it, he explained so much about his work and explained why he walked away from the film industry. In one tight passage, he explained his disgust with where Hollywood had gone. Quote, the winds of change blew through the dream factories of make-believe, tore at its crinoline tatters, the hedonists, the homosexuals, the hemophiliac bleeding hearts, the god-haters, the quick-buck artists who substituted shock for talent, all cried, shake em, rattle em, God is dead, long live pleasure. Nudity? Yeah. Wife-swapping? Yeah. Liberate the world from prudery. Emancipate our films from morality. Kill for thrill. Shock. Shock. To hell with the good in man. Dredge up his evil. Shock. Shock. He had many more choice things to say about the degradation of Hollywood that, while accurate and colorful, are not appropriate for a family-friendly podcast. Yes, and while Hollywood has mostly gone downhill from there... It's a Wonderful Life has enjoyed a renaissance. In 1976, a clerical error at the studio allowed the copyright on the film to lapse, and it entered the public domain. Network television began to air It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas. The rights were purchased by NBC in 1994, but not until after the film enjoyed a re-evaluation and has been placed on many lists of the greatest films ever made. Yeah, now what the experts, those who know better, said was no good, the people have found themselves drawn to. And that's the way with beauty. Certainly. Capra explained this in relation to his own Catholicism when he said he was a Catholic in spirit, one who firmly believes that the anti-moral, the intellectual bigots, and the mafias of ill will may destroy religion, but they will never conquer the cross. And Capra lived this message in his later decades. In 1972, he became a Knight of Malta under the sponsorship of fellow Catholic director John Ford, and for the last 13 years of his life, he served as an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. Capra lived to be 94 years old, dying in 1991 of a series of strokes. But he left behind a body of work that speaks to eternal truths and emphasizes the power of goodness, two themes so sorely needed. Or, as he described his own filmmaking, 
mankind needed dramatizations of the truth that man is essentially good, a living atom of divinity, that compassion for others, friend or foe, is the noblest of all virtues. Films must be made to say these things, to counteract the violence and the meanness, to buy time to demobilize the hatreds. We hope you all find time to enjoy It's a Wonderful Life this holiday season. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. You've been listening to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. Be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. Also, please support the many fine productions of SQPN at SQPN.com give. To learn more about Frank Capra and It's a Wonderful Life, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter for the latest information and updates. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Hester Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest. Hi everyone, this is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of StarQuest, with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Now we need your generous financial support to reach new audiences with more of the life-changing and uplifting programming We've been creating for more than a decade. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you are already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you and ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. Every gift counts. Could you give $15 or even just $10 per month? Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas. And remember that your gifts may be tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season.